Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR executive and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. I have been so looking forward to today's conversation with our guest, Mike Robbins. I'm meeting him for the first time today, but I feel like I already know him. I remember Ann raving about hearing this amazing speaker 10 years ago, and then some years later, he interviewed her on his podcast. I re-listened to their conversation a few days ago, which made me even more excited to have him here with us today. Yeah, I just couldn't agree more, Sherry. Mike and I met a little over 10 years ago at a conference called Wisdom 2.0, and I was new in my job. I was working for StubHub at the time, and there was a group of us from eBay, which is the parent, or at the time was the parent company of StubHub, decided to attend this conference. I didn't really know anything about it, and was in a big, huge conference center, and they had little tents set up, so it was like kind of cold, but it was also like you could somewhat hear the other speakers. It was it was a perfectly imperfect conference for sure. So I sit down, not a lot of expectations. I, I sit next to a woman who I knew worked at eBay, but I didn't really know her. And right from the start, Mike is a super, super engaging speaker, which I know all of our listeners will get to hear in just a few moments. But he dropped us into an exercise, which I'm not going to talk a ton about because I'm not sure what Mike will bring for us today. But let me just say the woman that I was connected with, within moments, we were sort of almost forehead to forehead to each other, sharing kind of some really deep, meaningful things. We were both crying at one point. And for those of you that that know me might be thinking, man was crying in public in this situation, but that was just the impact because Mike is so good at what he does that he he's able to touch into something in each one of us and have this really huge impact. And that extended when I brought Mike in a couple different times in a couple different companies. And I mean, here's the deal. It's a it's a very self-serving thing to bring Mike Robbins in to work because I always get huge kudos whenever I do. And uh, my, one of my favorite stories, and Mike's heard me tell this before, but you know, we hired an external video and audio firm at one of the workshops I brought Mike in to do. And these guys stopped me afterwards. They're like, you know what? We do this every day and we have never seen a speaker as good as this guy. So I am super, super excited to introduce my good friend, Mike Robbins, and to have Mike join us today on our podcast. So Mike, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. I'm grinning from ear to ear. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the kind words. And it's really nice to be here and reconnect Anne with you. And Sherry, it's really nice to meet you. Likewise. So Mike, we'd like to really just sort of jump in right here from the start and hear a little bit about your journey. You know, you're an author, you've written five books, you're a usually globetrotting speaker, I guess not over the past year in the pandemic. Um, But, you know, your journey is super interesting. You have roots in Oakland, California, and I'd, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, born and raised in Oakland, not far and from where you live. And yeah, still live here in the Bay Area, but, you know, grew up played baseball as a kid and was super passionate about it. That was my thing. That was my passion. That's what I loved and was pretty good at it. I got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. Didn't end up signing a contract with the Yankees at that time because I got an opportunity to play baseball in college at Stanford. So I go to Stanford, played baseball there, then got drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals. And I did end up signing a contract at that point. And, you know, in, in baseball, you get drafted by a major league team, whether it's the Yankees or the Royals or the Dodgers or any of the teams in the major leagues. You have to go into the minor leagues and sort of work your way up. Unfortunately for me, I got injured. I was a pitcher and I tore ligaments in my elbow my third season still in the minor leagues with Kansas City and then 
had a series of surgeries, ultimately wasn't able to come back, which was super sad and painful physically, but mostly mentally, emotionally, because by the time I finally retired from baseball, I was 25 and I had started playing when I was seven. And, you know, I mean, I'd gone to school and gotten a degree and but and, and always thought, at least theoretically, I got to have a plan B, I got to have a backup plan, but I didn't really have a plan B. Like, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. So, you know, here I was 25 years old. It was the late 90s. I moved home, got a job working in the tech world. The dot-com boom was happening, you know, in Bay Area, Silicon Valley, especially, you know, was selling internet advertising. I didn't really even literally, I I barely knew how to turn on a computer, let alone (laughs) sell internet advertising. But I, you know, I got a job because I had to pay the rent and it was interesting, but I was really in a pretty tough spot in my life because single mom had raised me. We didn't have a lot of money. I was really focused on, I'm going to make it to the major leagues and make a lot of money and be successful. And then I was like, oh, well, if I can't do that, what am I going to do? And who am I? Because that had been, I'd been Mike, the baseball player from the time I could remember. Right. So it was a huge sort of identity crisis and and a difficult sort of stretch of my life. But a couple years working for a few internet companies, what I started to get really interested in was my own personal growth and development. And part of it was just, I got really depressed when I was in college and there'd been a lot of mental illness in my family. My dad had bipolar disorder and that had been really scary and painful personally. And then after baseball, I struggled with some more depression, but also it was like, I just started to tap into and learn a bit. I mean, you know, in in the context of your podcast for East West, a lot of the Western stuff in terms of like the doctor said, well, do this and do that. And it didn't work. And my arm still hurt. And so it was like, I started to learn about acupuncture and about nutrition and about chiropractors and and all kinds of, at the time, a lot less mainstream sort of alternative health as we would think of it now. And those things became really interesting to me as well as just what is it that really makes us tick? You know, I had done all these things like gone to school and done well in school and I'd done well in sports and, and I was at times miserably unhappy. And I never took a class in college on how to be happy Mm. and how to live a fulfilling life, how to have good relationships, how to keep things in perspective, how to deal with stress. Like where were those classes? So I started taking those kind of workshops and found them fascinating personally. But then I was like, ooh, I want to see if I can maybe learn more about this, but could I teach it? Could I share it? Could, you know, so that was, you know, 20 years ago when I really started my journey as a coach and then ultimately as a speaker and then an author. And I mean, I can, I'll shut up for a minute so we can talk a bit about it, but there's been a lot of things that have happened along the way over the last 20 years as I've started down this path. But that was kind of what got me on the path of all of this, both personally and then doing the work itself. So it's always so interesting when you look back on a personal journey to look at how these seemingly disparate pieces look linear in retrospect. Right. And so going from sports to, I guess you didn't really go from sports to college. You took sports with you to college, but um, going from sports to high tech to dealing with a very emotionally traumatic experience of realizing this thing you'd been working for since you'd been seven years old was not going to happen now. Then following your interest around happiness and what makes us tick seemingly very unrelated pieces, right? And yet, in retrospect, it's so linear. Yeah. It, you know, one of the things that happened, Sherry, so I get hurt in 1997. I was actually 
pitching against the Durham Bulls. I know you live no in way. Bali. Yeah. <laughs> so I hurt my arm again, pitching against anyone listening. If you ever saw the movie Bull Durham, we were playing the Durham Bulls. I got hurt. This is like June of 97. I'm pitching in the Carolina League. Our team was in Wilmington, Delaware. But so they send me home. I have an operation on my arm that summer. Pretty significant you know, reconstructive elbow surgery. And then the next year, I was still recovering from that injury. I go to spring training, you know, living in California, spring training's in Florida. And the day before I left to go to spring training, a book arrives in the mail that I had ordered called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff mm -hmm. by a man named Richard Carlson, who I'd read about. He's a local guy and I actually had read a little bit of his backstory. My mom had cut out an article in the paper <laughs> and showed it to me that he'd played tennis and got hurt and then struggled with injuries and then ultimately became a rolfer like body worker and then a psychologist and then he'd written this book and i found his story interesting but the book was a mega bestseller right at the time mm -hmm. and i put it on top of my stuff and i was driving to florida with my girlfriend at the time she was coming with me to do the drive and then she was going to fly home and while i was sitting in the passenger seat when kara my girlfriend was driving I would read the book because it was it's like a book of short. They're basically blog posts, as we'd call them now, mm -hmm. short chapters, you know, a hundred little short chapters around these different themes. And I was loving the book like it was really speaking to me. But as I'm reading it, I'm going, this is so cool. Like, who is this guy and how did he get to do this? Like, I want to do that. And when I got to Florida for spring training, I go to the Walmart near where our spring training facility was and I and I and they had a bunch of copies of the book and I'd never done this before but I bought five copies of that book and I sent them back home to like my mom and my dad and my sister and a couple good friends like you have to read this book it's really good and I end up getting released by the Royals in spring training that year I mean I'm not even done with my rehab but my whole drive home back across the country I keep thinking like I got to talk to Richard Carlson. I got, and I'm like, what, what I'm white. I'm like 20, you know, what, what do you mean? Who is this? I'm he's not going to talk to me, but long story short, I get home and I figure out a way to get in touch with him. And he sends me a letter back in response to the letter that I send to him. Like an like actual letter, like in the mailbox letter. Like in the, well, well, here's the crazy part. You'll appreciate this. this is early 1998. And I find his website and in those days, people had like message boards on their website. Right. You could sort of post right. something. And I post, I write him a letter in the mail. Like I and then I get a form letter back from someone in his office. He's really busy. Thanks for the letter. But then I post it on his website. Just like I, and my letter was really like, thank you so much for your book. I think it's amazing. And I'd love to do what you do one day. And I just is, you know, and he wrote me back a three page wow. letter in the mail. He sends it to my mom's house where I grew up in Oakland because I'd put my little, you know, return address and I took it as a sign. And I remember thinking like, this is a sign I'm supposed to do this kind of, I don't know. So fast forward a few years later, he ends up, I meet him at a fundraising event and we have a mutual friend. And I'd already at this point now gotten into the business, started my coaching business, but was wanting to write. And Richard and I connect that day. And I'm like, man, you probably don't remember this a few years ago. I wrote you this letter. He's like, oh, I remember you. Wow. You're the pitcher from Oakland. And he ends up becoming my mentor. Ah. Uh. And Richard wrote the foreword to my first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, at the end of 2006, three weeks before he very suddenly and tragically passed away, mm. which was, and and I, I share all of this in context to share what you're talking about and, and you know, the sort of perfectly imperfect journey of, of this podcast. It's like, I had no idea these little things that happen along the way in our journey that like that book coming in the mail that day before I drove to Florida to ultimately get released. <laughs> the beginning of the end of my baseball career was a huge moment in my life that I had no idea. And I could have 
thrown that book aside. And, and I'm not a big reader, which is funny. I mean, I write books and sometimes, you know, my girls will joke, dad, we think you've written more books than you've read, which, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm more of an auditory learner. So I like to listen. So I love podcasts. I love audio books. But the fact that I read that book cover to cover out loud to my then girlfriend, and it really spoke to me, yeah. there was a reason that was supposed to happen. You know, there's so many good nuggets in what you just said. And I don't even think I'm going to retain all the ones that were going through my mind (laughs) as you were talking. But the first one is we never know where gifts are going to show up. That's right. Yeah. And sometimes in your case, you knew instantly, oh my gosh, like this is changing my life, like as it was happening. But sometimes we don't know till later. But the other thing that's in there that is just so like moving to me is that Richard Carlson changed your life. And how many times have we changed somebody's life through some like seemingly small thing on our part and don't even know it? In his case, he got to know it. You know, what's interesting and, and thinking of this in the context, and I know you both know this given the work that you do, but with leaders, sometimes I'll have that conversation as I'm sure you do. It's like you don't have any idea sometimes the things that you say right. and how it impacts people. I remember years ago being at an event that I was speaking at in Las Vegas and I had talked to a couple people from the company in, in the group before I got there. And one of the women I talked to on the phone had told me a story of one of the senior leaders in the company calling and leaving her a voicemail when she got a promotion. And that it made such a big, it was such a big deal for her that she kept it on her phone. Like it was three years ago, but she still had it saved in her voicemails and she would listen to it sometimes. And I, I meet her at the event because she has a name tag on. I'm like, oh, you and I talked on the phone and we start chatting. And I'm like, do you really have that voicemail? And she played it for me. And then I was like, does he know that you have that? And she was a little embarrassed. And I was like, let's tell him. So we go over to the guy, the senior leader, right? And then she plays the voicemail for him. And we have a nice chat and a laugh. And then she walks away and he looks at me and he goes, I don't even remember leaving that voice. <laughs> what amazing though. Right? He's like, I do that when people get promoted because it's a big deal. But I don't, I don't have an actual memory of leaving that message. And the fact that she has that on her phone and listens to it sometimes as a, you know, and again, it was just that moment of recognition that he had, right? That like, wow, I had this impact on this person and I didn't even realize that and don't even really remember it, but it's, she's carrying it around on her phone. And I think those kind of things happen all the time in life. And it's part of our job is to A, pay attention when they're happening with us, but also be mindful that we have the ability to do that for others, even if we don't think we do. That's right. And I, I think it's it, it's such a beautiful reminder to be to take care with our words, right? And to make sure that we are really focused to to name one of your books on the good stuff, right? And to allow others to shine and to notice when they do shine. I mean, I, I just yeah. think it's such a beautiful reminder. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that you were just touching on is other moments that Sherry and I sometimes call it the sacred whisper, right? Like we, there's something that comes across and are we paying attention or are we not? And, and clearly this book had a, a big impact on you, but I know there were others too. And I'm just curious if you could name a couple of other, are there resources or people or experiences that really sort of shaped and that you might've blown by had you not been kind of awake and paying attention? Are there other things you can think of? Oh, for sure. I mean, and I would say, you know, that period of my life, in my early 20s into my mid-20s as I was going through from college to professional baseball to out of baseball, there were so many things at that time. And, you know, and it was like, there were a series of books. That was one of them. There's another book called Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman, mm-hmm. 
who Dan's someone who I ended up then meeting not that long after I started. Dan used to live here locally, now lives out in New York, and he's become a mentor of mine Fantastic. and a friend, which is so great. There were just conversations that I would have. You know, my uncle, who's been a really important person in my life, who's a therapist who lives down in Texas, I remember having a conversation with him, and he said something to me about, you know, sort of stepping into my power. This was right after baseball ended, but he said, you know, Mike, when you step out of sort of the norm and you step into your own power, it's scary mm. and people will laugh at you or judge you, but often it's, they're uncomfortable with it. So don't let that deter you. And then the next day he wrote me a card and just wrote the word step out in it, in the card and put it in the mail. And it came in the mail and I put it up on my wall and for years, I had that card everywhere I lived, and I would just put it on the wall as a reminder. Like when I got scared, which I do all the time, even still, <laughs> about things, it's like step out. And, you know, those types of experiences in those early days. And I think, again, along the way, you know, and it's interesting, the day that you and I met at that Wisdom 2.0 conference so many years ago, I remember that day because I was actually having a really, really rough time right then. I was in the car in the parking lot at that event talking to someone who I do some sessions with who's kind of like a coach, counselor, therapist type person. <laughs> and I was literally crying because I was, I was really struggling. And what yeah. she said to me that day was, you know, and I've experienced this over 20 years of speaking and working with groups. It's like, you know, sometimes I'll call home and say to my wife when, when I used to be on the road, now I'm not, it's like, I don't know how this is going to go, babe. I'm going to be like the depressed motivational speaker today because it's like, <laughs> you know, I'm not always in a good mood. I'm not always ready to go fire people up. But what, what was said to me that day by my counselor, Eleanor, was bring what you're feeling into the room with you don't hide it, which I don't normally do, but it wasn't like, let me go share everyone. Here's what's going on with me. But there was something about that day in particular. And I met you and a couple other pretty significant people who I've stayed connected with. And that day of many days that I've had over the course of 20 years of doing this work was a really profound experience. And it's not yeah. surprising to me that, you know, you and I are still connected from that day. Cause it was one of those days, you know, you have those days where it's like something came into me and through me and happened. I don't know what the heck that was. That was cool. But so again, I think it's being open and available for those things to happen and not trying to force them. I did learn this as an athlete, you know, in sports, we call it being in the zone. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, the best thing you can do is just enjoy being in the zone because yeah. the moment you start going, oh my gosh, I'm in the zone. You're not in the zone anymore, right? So yeah, you have to just sort of let it happen and appreciate it while it's happening and know it's going to kind of flow through you and then not be there anymore. <laughs> Well, I love what you're saying about the advice you got and the advice you took to just show up fully, which is so different than too much information, right? And I'm right. sharing everything and people are wondering, like, I don't need to know this, right? But this idea of just really showing up, one of your TED Talks in one of your books is called Bring Your Whole Self to Work. Yeah. And this feels quite a bit like what you are talking about there is don't just shove it down. Don't just yeah. put a happy face on because it'll be obvious when you show up. You won't connect. Totally. And, and to your point, Sherry, there's a difference, as we know, between disclosure and vulnerability, right? Now, sometimes sharing what's going on and telling the information, I'm going through this, I'm dealing with a divorce or a loss or that, that that's that can absolutely be vulnerable and be essential for us to share at work or just in life. 
However, sometimes I think in the world that we live in now of sort of oversharing on social media and that type of thing, people can confuse disclosure with vulnerability, confuse disclosure with authenticity, with realness. And the truth is, it's about, can I bring my whole self to work, to life? That doesn't mean I have to tell you every single thing that's going on in my life and share every detail necessarily. I've written about this a lot in that book and and some of my other books too, like having dealt with loss and grief in my life. You know, Richard, my mentor passed away, as I mentioned, that was very sudden, having lost both of my parents as well as my sister navigating those experiences for me personally, like anyone who's ever dealt with loss and grief knows, painful, challenging, scary, weird, but then how to do that in a way that I still have to show up for work, I still have to show up. And and, and so I say that because I think what it is, it's like bringing it with us in our heart. And there may be moments where it's appropriate and necessary to share the specifics, and there may be other moments where it's just that sense of awareness. A lot of what I've experienced through the pandemic has been this simultaneously weird, like we're all disconnected and at home and on screens and like we don't see each other. And then simultaneously, it's like we're zooming into people's living rooms and dining rooms and spare bedrooms and there's babies and dogs and stuff happening. And it's sort of like, whoa, it's both simultaneously more impersonal than ever because we can't see each other like eye to eye, heart to heart. But then in a way, if we choose to bring our whole selves to it, there's a way we can connect with each other even more authentically and genuinely than we were connecting previous to this. So a lot of it is our intention more than anything else. Yeah, I love that. And I'm I'm so curious because your most recent book, We're All in This Together, came out in the middle of the pandemic. And I'm sure you didn't <laughs> yes. I'm sure you didn't know it was gonna happen, right? And so how do you really think this book and your work connects to what is going on right now? Well, what's interesting, so Bring Your Whole Self to Work came out in 2018. It was my fourth book. And a couple interesting things happened when that book came out. That's a lot about authenticity and showing up fully, as we were talking about. But I had some people say some things to me in response to that book that I appreciated, but were a little hard to hear at first. People would say to me, well, Mike, it's easy for you to say, bring your whole self to work. You're white, you're straight, you're male, you're cisgendered, you have all of these privileges. And like, I mean, I got my degree at Stanford in American Studies with a specialization in race and ethnicity. I grew up in Oakland. Yes, I'm white, I'm straight, I'm male, I'm cisgendered. But like, while my work hasn't focused a lot on diversity and inclusion over the years for a couple of reasons, I've always thought of myself as someone who pays attention and is sensitive. And so that feedback, my initial reaction was like, wait, do you you know me and my story and my background and where I came from and how I grew up and how I was raised? And But then I started to understand it more deeply. Oh my goodness, there's so many things that I don't see and don't understand and can't understand no matter how much I pay attention and listen and learn. It's like, yeah, it is easier for me to say, bring my whole self to work because of how I look and where I'm from and my race and my gender and all of these things. And so for me, it was like that coupled with so much of the divisiveness that I've been experiencing and seeing manifest itself in so many ways in our culture. I wanted to write, we're all in this together right away, even though I didn't really want to write another book, quite frankly, because hmm. I loved I love speaking. I love doing the work. Writing books is hard for me, hmm. and it takes a toll on me and the family and my wife and my girl. Everyone was like, no, not another book. But I was like, <laughs> I have to. And I was. it was really clear, like, I have to write this book. It has to come out in 2020. It has to be called We're All in This Together. Because I expected that 2020 was going to be a really divisive and intense year with everything that's going on in the country and the world. I had no expectation or awareness, of course, that there would be a global pandemic and then a level of reckoning around race and diversity that we haven't seen probably ever. So the book was done in 2019. It comes out in the spring as we're getting into the pandemic. But what was interesting about it is 
oh, on the one hand, it's like, well, this book doesn't really speak to what's going on. But then as I looked more deeply, it's like, well, it does in so many ways. And as people were then, the, the question that I was getting similar to like, you know, the bring your whole self to work question was like, well, wait a minute, are we really all in this together? Mm. Because it does seem as though like, I mean, I'm talking to leaders who are having to lay people off and furlough people and make really hard decisions or looking at, wow, there's a lot of haves and have nots depending on what industry you're in or where you live or what you look like or your socioeconomic level and all of this. And it then became clear to me and people started talking about this. But what really resonated with me was this notion of we're not all in this together. We're actually all in the same storm and we're just in different boats. Mm. And so the challenge for us as humans, particularly leaders, and whether we're talking about inside of organizations or just in our society as a whole, it's like, how do we simultaneously take care of ourselves and what's going on in our own boat, like our family and the people closest to us, and also pay attention to and be aware of what's happening in all the other boats around us, which is not easy to do in general and particularly more challenging to do now, but probably as important as ever. Yeah. So, I mean, can you give us some advice? How do you do that when you're, <laughs> when there's all this stuff going on and I'm barely like keeping my head above water, right? So right. how do we sort of focus on others while maintaining our own kind of sanity? Well, it's hard. I mean, it's the cliche, but we got to first take care of ourselves. We got to, you yes. know, do the whole, put our own oxygen mask on first. And look, if, if my, if my boat's taken on water and I'm drowning, like I can't really help you. That's right. So there is an element of constantly you know, I, it's been for me personally, I don't know how it's been for each of you, but like at my house with my wife, Michelle, and our girls who are now 15 and 12, I mean, look, we're super blessed, super fortunate, super privileged on so many levels. And at the same time, like it's been hard. It's been hard. Michelle and I've had to really, we've been together for 20 years, really dig in on how we stay connected to each other, give each other space and really work on our marriage as a family. Like I would have thought one of the biggest challenges in our family prior to the pandemic was me traveling as much as I do not being around. If you'd have, if I, you'd have told me today, actually, as we're recording, this is one year of, of the last time I gave an in-person speaking wow. engagement. And oh, if you'd have wow. told me a year ago, you're not going to travel for a whole year. You're going to do every single event you do on Zoom or on video. I would have thought, well, I don't even know what that means, let alone that's not possible. But I would have thought, oh, I'd be super connected with my family. I'd be in this really great place where my meditation practice and all of my self-care practices would be dialed in. I'd be awesome. That has not been the case. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking you, about. That's totally what right. happened for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and so again, but it's like learning how do we then recalibrate our family situations. And again, some people live and have kids, teens, young kids, no kids, older kids, aging parents, live alone. I mean, everybody's situation is different, right? So what people need is different. And so therefore, but at some level, the first thing that we have to do is tell the truth about our own experience and do whatever we can to support ourselves and the people closest to us. Then the second part of it, and it's hard again, and it's like, if we're really struggling, it's even harder to do. But can we get out of our own experience and be curious about the experiences of others. Yeah. Checking in with people and being reminded of, I mean, sometimes it's hard, but selfishly, even when I'm really struggling, one of my practices over the years has been to reach out and offer support to others mm. because it does get me out of my own stuff for enough that I can then pay attention to, oh, like there's other people on the planet who are having different experiences than I am 
maybe I can be of service to them. And I don't know if the, both of you have noticed this, but I, for me, it's way easier to deal with other people's issues than my own. <laughs> I'm right? really good at solving other people's problems. <laughs> exactly, right? But, but part of it is we don't have the same emotional attachment. Even right. the people that we, it's like, you know, you bring an issue to me and I can have some sense of objectivity or awareness of it, or at least perspective that you won't have. Not that I know you better than you know you or your life, but I'm not attached to it in the same way. And that's where we can really help each other and support each other. You know, my my daughter, our older daughter, Samantha's her first year of high school, one of her teachers first semester when they were on Zoom and it was really hard and she would start her classes every couple of weeks and she would just have the kids send her a private message in Zoom with zero to 10, 10 being the best, zero being terrible. Like, how are they doing mentally, mm-hmm. emotionally? And they would just, and then sometimes she'd say, if, if the numbers were really low, which they often were, she'd say, okay, we're not going to get to the lesson until we talk about this for a little bit. Fantastic. And Samantha would come to me and say, oh, she's so awesome, dad. Like we got to talk about how we were feeling and what was going on. And, and I didn't feel so separated and isolated. And here's my sweet, you know, then 14 year old daughter who's like at a brand new high school with kids she doesn't really know. And she's connecting on Zoom. It's been really right. hard. But like, that's a great leadership example of like, leaders could do that with their teams. That's right. Hey, before we start the meeting, like, let's do a little check-in. How's everybody doing? It's like, and if everybody's really doing terrible, guess what? The meeting's not going to go well if you don't at least acknowledge that in some way. <laughs> That's right. You know? yeah. That's right. <laughs> One of the things that has been very interesting to me about this pandemic, and it's funny your comment about we're all in the same storm in different boats, is a friend of mine literally said those exact words yeah. three days ago, maybe. And one of the things that has been, I think, an opportunity for many of us is because it's shaken everything up is an an ability and a necessity to rethink everything. And I'll speak for myself, it's gotten me out of some of my ruts and has made me much more flexible in, so how do I still stay connected to people? Because connection for me is like oxygen. Mm. And I'm also operating on the very cautious end of the spectrum. And so how do I still stay connected with people? And I'm involved in a couple of organizations, one that pivoted very quickly and one that dragged its feet around, we're just going to wait till we can get back to normal. And it's just been a really interesting opportunity to look at things with very fresh eyes, whether it's, I have to look at it through fresh eyes out of complete dire circumstances or I have to look at it with fresh eyes because I can't keep doing it the way I was doing it. And we don't get that opportunity. I guess we always have that opportunity. We don't get that push to do it very often. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think all of us, you know, the, the sort of overused word of the last year has been pivot, but it has forced all of us not only to pivot and do things differently, but reflect on how we were doing things or why we do things the way we do. You know, and, and I think it's also important for us to have compassion for ourselves and each other. It's like, I've been saying this a lot in the last few months in particular, because I think there's a weariness on the one hand, like we're getting better at this is the new normal and with this is kind of life. And maybe there's a certain amount of surrender, but it's also just friggin' exhausting. And it's like enough already. And I'll say to Michelle at least once a week, like, I'm so done. I'm so ready for this to be over (laughs) and not to just simply whine about it. Although I am whining usually in those moments, but it's like, (laughs) gosh, this is hard. 
I don't think any of us are playing with a full deck these days emotionally because I just think we're depleted. And it's not, again, I think of it in sort of in sports terms, it's like the end of the season. Usually everyone's a little banged up, a little tired physically, mentally, emotionally. You still have to go out and play. You don't get to say, I'm not playing anymore because I don't feel good. But But it's important to acknowledge it's not like, we're not fresh and ready to go right. in some ways. But I do think, again, without being corny or, or trite about it and, and being mindful of the fact that some of us are a lot less fortunate than others and this has impacted people and losing their jobs or losing people close to them yeah. in, in a way that is real, I do think there's so many blessings and silver linings and opportunities for growth in the midst of this. And let's be honest, I do think it'll be easier for us to understand and unpack all of the growth when we're on the other side of it. We can look back and go, remember, yeah, that was really awful, but here's what we learned. But we're still in it. It's kind of hard to see the forest for the trees while we're still in it. For sure. And I I mean, I think that really speaks to even the journey and where you started in the conversation about how one thing led to the next. And you really, in the moment, it just feels so dire. But then it's upon reflection later that you're like, oh, I get it. I get that this led to that. I am yeah. curious, you sort of made fun of yourself a little bit about, uh, oh, I'm going to have this great meditation practice. And, um, but you you probably do have some practices and tools that really try to yeah. you know, sort of keep you grounded. And I'd love to hear what some of those are. Yeah. I mean, look, I do. I have a meditation practice that I've had <laughs> since college, actually. Wait, can I, let me just stop you there. Like what, how did you know about meditation back in college? So I was, I was at Stanford in the early to mid nineties where I I first started to learn about meditation. It was twofold. I had a girlfriend in college who was a swimmer and her coach was really progressive Mm. and brought in a bunch of people to talk to them and work with them. And they used to do their training over the holidays in Colorado Springs. And they had someone come in first and teach them about mindfulness and meditation. And this is like 1994, 95. And I remember Jenny came back and gave me a cassette tape, a meditation cassette tape that I started listening to. And she said, if you listen to this before games or before you compete, it'll actually quiet your mind. And I started to do that. And then when she came back from this one training session that they had in Colorado Springs, they'd had a guy come and do a, a workshop with them. And Fast forward a few weeks after that, I was in a really, in as I talked about being depressed in college, she was worried about me. She was scared. Like mm. I wasn't doing well. And she called this guy on the phone and was like, could you please talk to my boyfriend? He's not doing well. Mm. And she puts me on the phone with this guy. I don't know who the heck he is. And I'm just talking to him. This guy's name is Chris Anderson. And he's like, he literally, the way I described it after the fact I'd never talked to anyone like this in my life. It was like he reached through the telephone <laughs> down into my soul and went, is this what you're talking about? And I was like, how the heck? Did, who are you? Where did you come from? How did you know where this pain was coming from? Like he just said things to me no one had ever said to me. And I became sort of obsessed with him. Mm. And I mean, I started calling him all the time. I'm sure he was like, this kid is crazy. But I just was so hungry for can you help me through this very painful time? But similar to what I was sort of alluding to earlier, like when I read Richard Carlson's book, it was like, I wanted the help from it. But then I also was like, I want to understand more about this. And so he started teaching me about meditation and about all kinds of things that were super weird to me and out there like metaphysics and sort of how the universe works. Nothing I'd ever learned before, read before, heard before. And I was almost for the first couple of years I worked with Chris and he would recommend books and send me cassette tapes and I wouldn't even tell a soul about them. It was like my little secret. Like if anyone knew that I was reading this stuff or listening to this stuff, they would think I'm crazy. I actually kind of think I'm crazy, but it's really helping me. And so I started meditating 
at that time. And that practice has evolved over the years, but it started at a very pivotal time for me. And it's been really interesting. And you and I talked about this when you were on my podcast, just to see the world of meditation and mindfulness expand and sort of explode in wonderful ways, especially over the last decade. And people talk about it in the business world and the sports world and everywhere. And it's like, we now know all of the benefits of it. Yeah. But that's been huge for me. And journaling, which I also started around that time. I mean, these things came from pain, but it was like a place that I could go in meditation was safe. And I felt like I could sort of detach from the story and the drama of my life and sort of get grounded and get connected with something greater. And then writing in my journal was a place that I could just sort of say anything and everything I needed to say to get it out of my head and not be judged and not worry and not try to explain it or have to justify it. I could just say it. And I also, I have two journals that I carry and they're just sitting here on my desk. And back when I would travel, they'd be in my briefcase. One is just a journal where I'll just share whatever's going on. The other journal started as a gratitude journal Mm. where I would write down a few things I'm grateful for every day. And it's evolved over the years that I now write down when I write in it. I try to do it daily, although I wrote in it the other day and realized I hadn't written it in about a week and a half. Three things I'm grateful for and then three things that I forgive myself for. So it's become a gratitude slash self-compassion journal, which, you know, every day there's things I'm like, oh, why did I do that? I can't believe I did this. I said this. I did. Right. So it's just a reminder to myself. I forgive myself for, and those practices really help me. Beautiful. I love the idea of a forgiveness practice. Mm. I've had a gratitude practice for a very, very long time, but the idea of marrying that with like gratitude is this very external. These are the things I'm grateful for. Forgiveness is such an internal practice. Yeah. I'm going to take that idea. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. It sort of reminds me, Mike, I think it might have been when the Bring Your Whole Self to Work came out perhaps, but I brought a group of friends to hear you speak in San Francisco. And yes. one thing you said in that talk, my friend, literally four or five years, whatever, I forget when that book came out. Yeah. Later, she still says to this day, and I think it was Michelle had said it to your wife, that, mm-hmm. hey, can you be a little kinder to that person you're beating up, meaning yourself? Because yeah. that's somebody I love. I'm getting the quote wrong. Can you yeah. can you play that back? And Because I love that. Well, this was years ago. So Michelle and I have been together for over 20 years now. And when we met the end of 2000, fall of 2000, and I had gotten laid off from my internet job that summer, was half-heartedly looking for a job, wasn't having much luck. The economy had tanked, dot-com bubble had burst. It was hard to find a job. I really wanted to start my coaching business and wanted to start speaking and writing, but I was scared. And Michelle, who had started her own staffing company a few years before I met her, was probably the biggest influence in me really starting my business. She's like, you could totally do this. You know, yeah, it's scary and it's hard, but you can totally do it. So we start dating. I start my business not that long after. And a few months in, it was, you know, it was hard and I was young and it was scary and the economy was bad. I mean, it was all the stuff that anyone listening, if you've ever started any kind of business or even just a new job, you know, that vulnerable feeling of like, this is crazy. I can't do this. I should quit and do something else. Right. So I was having one of those moments and I called Michelle on the phone and I'm like, I suck and this isn't working and I can't do this. Right. And she listened to me for a few minutes and she's like, listen, I appreciate you telling me how you're really feeling. I know that it's hard. She said, but I have to say something to you right now. And I said, what? She said, stop talking about my boyfriend like that. And I was like, what? She goes, look, I know you're frustrated, but you just said some really mean things about yourself. If someone else said those mean things about you, I would be mad at them. (laughs) She said, just because you're you doesn't give you the right to do that. And I was like, first, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this woman, right? She's amazing. (laughs) But I was like, wow, I'd never thought of it that way. Like when we're mean to ourselves, 
yes, it's detrimental to us. And most everyone listening to this podcast has some awareness that I probably shouldn't be mean to myself. That's not good for me, my well-being. However, it's disrespectful to the people who love us. Right. Right? Like we're someone's friend. We're someone's spouse or or sibling or child or co-worker. We're important people in people's lives. And so, again, if someone else were talking about someone that you really love that meanly and harshly, you would be like, knock that off. Like, right? And so to try to remember, and I think about this now, when I go to that negative place with myself, which we all do, it's like, okay, that's not helping me, but that's also dishonoring and disrespecting the people who love and care about me. And it's hard. I mean, look, the relationship we have with ourselves is the most important and most challenging relationship, I think, in our lives for most of us. And we don't spend a lot of time on it. We're not really encouraged in a healthy way for the most part. How do we nurture our own relationship with ourselves? How do we feel good about ourselves personally, professionally, physically, mentally, emotionally? It's like we know it's super important, but it's like, where's that class? Where's that encouragement? We're supposed to be... You know, and look, and I think you both know this better than I do. I mean, women get set a whole bill of goods around that, that like, don't be selfish and you got to care for everyone and nurture everyone. And it's like, right. I mean, there's at least a little more encouragement for men to like, go do it and you be this. And it's like, it's not that it's super healthy, but there's this weird, you know, Michelle, my wife says to me all the time, like, she's like, you know, I haven't been trained to manage my own needs very well. So give me a break. And I'm like, oh, you're right. Because that's not the training that we get in general, but especially the way, and we're raising two girls in our house. It's like, how do we train humans and especially women and people to just take care of, this is what I need. This is what I want. It's not selfish. It's not arrogant. It's like, I've got to put my own oxygen mask on first, if I'm going to be there for anyone else. And that's a really hard thing for us to do as human beings. Yeah. You know, it's such a good point on dealing with the same things is a very different experience for different people. And yeah. and you can say it in groups of people, right? Yeah. It's There are things that are very different for men to deal with than women. There's things that are very different for white people to deal with than people of color. Right. And there are still some universal truths that have to be applied in very different ways. Yeah. I wrote down the names of your books and I happened to write them down just stacked on top of each other. And as I'm listening to you talk, I think the names of your books really sum up the bottom line of what you've been sharing with us. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the read the names of the book because it turns out to be their five awesome steps in self-development. Focus on the good stuff. Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Nothing changes until you do. Bring your whole self to work, and we're all in this together. And I think that just really sums up really so much of what you're talking about, and that is applicable to everybody, but it's a really good reminder that it doesn't play out the same way for everybody. Right. Well, listen, I appreciate you saying that. It's funny and interesting to hear you read the five titles of my books in a row just because, you know, it's then the span of the first one came out in 07, the most recent one came out last year, and all the different iterations and journeys kind of in my own life to birth each of those books. But in a lot of ways, some of it's paradoxical, if you will. It's like focus on the good stuff is super important, but be yourself is really important because it's like we got to be real. And being real doesn't mean that everything's good. Sometimes things suck. Sometimes things are hard. Sometimes things are, right? Nothing changes until you do is like that ownership that like, oh, maybe I should stop blaming everyone and pointing fingers at everyone and wanting everyone else to be different. You know, I mean, so these things are... I think obviously they're important because I've written about them and they're also on the one hand relatively easy to understand but much more challenging to practice 
and I'm sure both of you can relate to this and a lot of people listening can relate to it's like I've always been of the opinion like I teach best what, what I most need to learn yep and so a lot of when people ask me like why'd you write this book or why'd you write that book or why it was like well because that's what I was both interested in and struggling with at that time and maybe even still but I wanted to delve more deeply into it because I feel like what gives a lot of us credibility to be able to talk about things with others is if we're actually grappling with them in our lives. I mean, look, there are people in, in the world that are experts at things and yeah. really know I've done this and I'm an expert and I can teach you A to Z how to do it. Most of the stuff when it comes to kind of soft skills, whether it's professionally or even personally, we're all kind of figuring it out as we go, I think. And some of us may be a little bit further down the path than someone else so we can share some wisdom or some experience. Here's what I've seen or here's what I've learned. But I just sort of feel like, I've always been interested in how do we engage in these conversations? Mm. Because if we can engage in a conversation about appreciation or about authenticity or about self-compassion or about really having the courage to show up fully or about all the paradoxes, by the way, of we're all in this together. Because yes, we are. And no, we aren't at the same time. That's right. <laughs> all the time, right? That's like right. I see that almost every day in the world in which we live. It's like, oh my gosh, we're in it together. Oh my gosh, we're totally separated at the same time. And it's this weird paradox, but I think that's part of what makes being human so fascinating and at times kind of tricky. For sure. You know, Mike, you've given us such great advice today and I, I have so many things that I'm taking away from this. And <laughs> I have one last question for you, and that's really about your younger self. And if you could go back and give a piece of advice to your younger self, what's, what's one thing you might say to him? <laughs> well, a couple of things. The first thing that just popped into my head was like, dude, appreciate your hair while you have it. Um, <laughs> All right, y'all. You don't get to see the video, but Mike's, you know, Mike probably needs to wear a hat yes. in the cold weather. Let's just say yes. that. Yes. No, but I mean, but part of it is just the, the appreciate, relax, enjoy, like appreciate every step of the journey. Yeah. And it's funny because as you asked me that, I can sort of see myself at, you know, 15 and 25 and 35 sort of saying that to each younger version of myself. But ironically, I can also even see an older version of myself saying that to me right now. Yeah. That it's like, relax, enjoy, appreciate all the different aspects of this journey because you're never going to be right where you are again. And there's things you're going to miss. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is both so challenging and so universal about life is that the challenge of being able to appreciate what we have while we have it, what's going on, like even in the midst of a pandemic, like there will be things about this time that we all miss. Yeah. There'll be lots of things we won't, but we'll look back at this and it'll be like everything else in life. There'll be a certain sort of good old day aspect of it. Right? <laughs> Remember back. <laughs> Remember back. Yeah. And 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 I, I've been saying to my girls, although they roll their eyes at me in general, but especially about this, but hey, pay attention right now because you're going to be telling this story for the rest of your lives. Yeah. And so I would say that to my younger self to like really pay attention and enjoy and appreciate this because you're going to be telling this story. <laughs> We're all telling our story for the rest of our lives. And let's try to have the best possible story we can have to tell <laughs> and the best possible experience. That's right. Well, Mike, I just, I, this has been such a delight to have you on today. I mean, I love where we're ending on appreciation. And I really love what you said about taking good care of ourselves first. And sure, we've all heard that put your oxygen mask on first, but it, it's so true. If we can't take care of ourselves first, it's really hard to take care of others. So that's yeah. my big takeaway from today. Thank you so much for that. Oh, you're welcome. I have so many takeaways from today, but so much of what you talked about reminds me of one of my very favorite quotes that it came from Tal Ben-Shahar, who is a 
pretty well-known person in the positive psychology field. And Anne and I both had the opportunity to take a virtual class with him and do some in-person studying with him. And it's very simple. The way he says it is when you focus on the good, the good appreciates. And so much of what you've talked about today really boils down to that. Yeah. Mike, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here with us today. For all of you listening, we've put a list of Mike's books in the show notes, as well as links to his social media and other places you can find him. And thanks to everyone for listening. Join us next time for Flowing East and West, The Perfectly Imperfect Journey to a Fulfilled Life.